0: Well, uh, please turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 7, uh, which was page 1148 1148 of the Church Bibles. And on the back of the service sheet is an outline of where we're we're going, although that will need to be edited a little bit, which I will talk about in a moment. Just as you're finding 1 Corinthians uh, 7, uh, I speak this morning as someone who has much to be thankful for. Uh, many, many different things I'm thankful for. Uh, a couple of them, two weeks ago we moved into a new home, which I love, we, we love, and we're, we're slowly uh, unpacking all the boxes and it's a real joy to be there. Uh, two weeks from now we're going to see Australia for the first time in years and that is bringing me much joy. Uh, much sunshine is coming my way in two weeks uh, with with heat uh, added. <laughs> But there are two things, two things especially uh, that have been on my mind in this last week that are causing me to thank God. Two people really and I want to mention one this week and I'll mention another next week. Uh, And as I've uh, remembered them this week, uh, the words of Paul right at the start of this letter that we've been in for some months, 1 Corinthians 1 verse 4 have come to my mind. He says, I always thank God for you because of his grace that has been given to you in Christ Jesus As I said, let me tell you about one of them. It's a guy I met for the first time back in the summer, early summer of 2008. He was a Christian. He is a Christian. Uh, Had been for many years uh, but was trapped. uh, Trapped by sexual immorality. Uh, In 2008 when I met him he was captivated by the God of sex. A miserable God. A God that had left him broken and adrift and joyless. Now this week, as we met up again, I met a brother who had been given grace. Grace powerful enough to bring healing and purpose and joy back to a life like that. I met a brother now captivated by the glorious Christ crucified, uh, who he had seen bring change from the inside out. Not just a few behaviours, but the whole thing changed. And my brother is changed forever, and I am thankful. And as Paul starts out this letter that, as I said, we've been in for, for quite some time, he was giving thanks for similar change. He had seen this grace of God given in Christ crucified take men and women who were stuck in the world of Corinth, stuck in a world shaped by human power and human wisdom, a world just like ours. He'd seen grace take them out of that world and open up for them a whole new world. Paul thanked God for this grace because he knew those who received it were changed forever free, free to live spiritual lives and not worldly ones, free as we've seen in recent weeks from sexual immorality because God himself had come to dwell in their body by his spirit. They were free. Grace, uh, Paul says in his second letter to the Corinthians, brings a new creation about, totally new, the old gone, the new has come. But as we've seen in this letter, sometimes that change comes slow, doesn't it? Especially in chapters 5 and 6, we have seen that even when grace comes to a life, living for self is slow to leave. And that especially showed itself amongst the Corinthians in this issue of sexual immorality. For some, the the freedom bell that grace sounds was an invitation to do what I want, when I want, with who I want. But as we turn to chapter 7 this morning, we see the exact opposite problem. Those who know grace brings freedom from selfishness but for them grace means self-denial. Living a spiritual life and not a worldly one means being free from the world altogether. It was a mistaken view of spirituality amongst the Corinthians that severed the link between God and his creation. Anything to do with the world, anything to do with the material world, even my body, well that's unspiritual and to be avoided. And so for such people, growing as a Christian was a bit like spring cleaning. Everything had to go. I've been experiencing that uh, myself in recent weeks uh, as Liz and I moved towards uh, moving house. We have a very different approach to cleaning up and packing up. My view is if it's gone out of our house, then, uh, then that's probably for the best. Uh, cleaning up means getting rid of everything. And so again and again as we've moved to this new house, Liz has had to ask, where is that, that thing And I've had to look sheepishly at her and say, it it might not be with us anymore. (laughs) Sometimes when we go into those sort of clean-up modes, though, the good goes out with the bad. And that's what's happening here in 1 Corinthians 7. Paul is uh, responding, you can see in verse 1, to a letter that he's received from them. A letter that is coloured with this sort of thinking. And our passage is going to pick up uh, the issue of sexuality and marriage. Now let me pause here just before we look at it together and say something that I think is very important. If you've just heard those two words, sex and marriage, and you've thought, well, I'm not married, so that's me counted out for this sermon. I sure hope the notice sheet is interesting. Think again. For starters, some here who are unmarried may well be married in the future. And even if that's not the case, all unmarried people here will know and care and love for those who are. You may well be in a small group with married people, people that you are called upon to spur them on towards love and good deeds in specific ways, in real ways that impact their real relationships. And so it's important to listen to what God has to say about marriage, even if you are not. Listen so that you can pray for your married brothers and sisters. Listen so that you can speak to them wisely. Listen so that you will know how to relate well to them. And also know this, a good chunk of what we will see next week, uh, later in chapter 7, the shoe will be on the other foot and they will need to listen too. And so as we turn to 1 Corinthians 7, it was page 1148, if you've not got it open, and we're going to be looking at the first nine verses. I've, I've cut it short, we were going to get down to 16, but there's so many big issues that we need to grapple with, we're going to stop at verse 9. So the last point on the outline you can scratch out if you're looking for a bit more room, if you're taking notes. As I said, uh, Paul is addressing a a letter that he's received from them and it's important to realise that they've not written him a letter asking their spiritual guru some questions. Tell us, Paul, oh wise one, what to do. Uh, We've seen earlier in the letter, that's not the view they have of Paul. I suspect rather they've written him a letter and they're boasting about how spiritual they are, especially when it comes to sex and marriage. And what Paul's going to do is he's going to pull that delusion out from under them and perhaps us as well. And I also suspect if you're here today and you're not a Christian, it may well challenge your view of what Christian marriage and Christian life looks like. Essentially in our our verses, Paul says two things. The first one is this, if you're married, have sex. He he quotes uh, something from the Corinthians letter in verse 1. He says, it it is good for a man not to marry. Well, that's, that's the translation we have there. But if you look at the bottom of your Bibles, you'll see a footnote. Uh, with a different translation which is far more accurate. What he is actually quoting is, it is good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman. That was the Corinthians' view, the the super spiritual view. Uh, Being a Christian rules out sex, doesn't it? I mean, I've heard the phrase, uh, no sex, we're British. Now we have no sex, we're Christian. Paul's response? Well, he agrees. You're right, but you're also unbelievably wrong. When it comes to sexual immorality, you're absolutely right. But when it comes to marriage, if you are married, your marriage should be full of sex. The response to a sexually immoral culture is not to throw sex out with immorality, in fact the opposite. Paul says to the married, each man should have his own wife and each woman her own husband. Literally what he's saying there is each should keep having their husband or wife, keep holding fast to them Not anyone else, of course not, but to her or him, yes. You see, a cross-shaped marriage, a spiritual marriage, is not sexually immoral, but it is not sexually barren either. It is ongoingly sexually active, says Paul. You see, all the way through the Bible, you might have got the wrong impression, perhaps, if you've read the last couple of chapters in isolation, that you might think that God is down on sex, anti-sex. But the Bible is incredibly positive. It is, in fact, the very first command that God gives the man and the woman in the Garden of Eden, have sex. Uh, you read a verse like Deuteronomy 24, verse 5, and a husband is told to have a year off duty to stay at home and, quote, bring happiness to his wife. And the Bible's not talking about soft furnishings and renovations. <laughs> you, you read a book like Song of Songs, it's a celebration of how good sex in marriage is. That The lovers there are just wrapped in each other. The Bible is very positive about sex. God, in his creative, kind, magnificent will, makes us sexual creatures, male and female, creatures who long for intimacy. The picture in Genesis 2 is of the husband and wife holding fast to each other. They're naked and there is no shame. Paul says, yes, flee sexual immorality. It will destroy you. Flee the shame it brings, but don't flee sex. Not if you're married, embrace it. So God says, on the contrary to the Corinthian view of spirituality, a cross-shaped marriage is one with sex and lots of it. And in these verses, he gives us three reasons why sex is so important to a marriage. The first one you see uh, in verse 3, he says, it is your duty to keep having sex with each other. The husband should fulfil his marital duty to his wife and likewise the wife to her husband you see here, it's not the wife's duty alone, it's not the husband's duty alone, it's a mutual obligation they have to each other. Now we see the word duty and our, our minds seem, seeming we're so wrapped up in our culture we can't view it in anything but a negative way. But the Bible's duties that it gives us, the, the duties that God calls upon us, his obligations are never burdensome. Take for example the duty to worship God with all your heart and soul and mind. You do that and it won't weigh down your heart. It will cause it to soar because that's what you're made for. And the same is true in sec- of sex in marriage. Our husband and wife are made for this, says God. Regular sex within a marriage is a duty because it expresses an already existing reality. You are one flesh. And sex is God's great gift to express that reality. It is deeply spiritual and deeply Christian. But it is a duty that can be abused and misused, isn't it? When we demand that obligation of each other. And some here will know the pain that comes from that sort of abuse. All too often it is brutishly demanded. Or sex becomes a bribe or a threat or a reward. And so if you are married here this morning, search your heart. If you're reading this verse and you're thinking, great, This is the verse I've been looking for. You owe me. It's in the Bible. You you can't argue with that. Can't wait to show my spouse this verse. To you, the Bible says, worry about your duty, not theirs. Romans 13 uh, tells you that you are owed nothing because of Jesus. You are a net giver in this world, not a taker. Sex is to be a giving thing and not a getting thing. You see, sex in marriage is a duty that if viewed rightly will express itself in a selfless desire to give your body to the other for their joy. It's a duty born out of this realisation. A a husband cannot meet every need his wife has in marriage, but there is one that only he can meet, only he should meet. And moreover, it is a duty, you can see in verse 4, that is born out of this reality. The wife's body does not belong to her alone, but also to her husband In the same way, the husband's body does not belong to him alone, but also to his wife. It's a wonderful picture, isn't it? If you're married, your bodies are shared territory, one country. Uh, In my uh, passport, my Australian passport, it's got a visa that lets me stay in this country and it makes very clear the terms that I'm allowed to stay in this country. If I change those terms, if if I go beyond them, then I'm told no. But in a couple of weeks' time, I will go to Australia and I can go wherever I want. Total freedom. One land, one country, my country. That's what marriage is like. It's not two cities, two opposed cities. It is one land shared together. It is your duty to honour that, says the Bible. Now there's lots of practical questions that come out of this first reason to have sex in marriage and I will leave most of those practical questions up to the married couples to sort out themselves but I guess one of the big ones is how often is this duty to be undertaken? Let me say the key in all of this is going to be mutual agreement, isn't it? So talk, help each other. But as a guide, I suspect Paul has all the way through these verses this in mind, it needs to be often enough such that neither partner is frustrated or tempted. Work that out together. In verse 5, Paul gives us a second reason why sex is so important in marriage. He says, you are not to deprive each other. Or More more literally, do not rob each other when it comes to sex. It's too important. Now again, some of us may be sitting here thinking, yes, at last, this is the verse. Here's the one I've been looking for. I I can't wait to go home and tell my husband, see, don't don't deprive me. Well, if that's you, uh, let me also say, don't forget the verse you read a couple of weeks back in uh, chapter 6, verse 7, which said, Shouldn't you rather be robbed? The cross shaped husband or wife is not a debt collector. So guard your heart and your words and your actions in light of these verses. But for the Corinthians, there there was a different problem. This is why Paul says what he does in verse 5. Some of them were claiming spiritual priorities took precedence over sex in marriage. Well, Paul says to them, this is a spiritual priority in marriage. It's a gospel issue for couples. You can't, as the Corinthians were doing, split the spiritual and the physical aspects of your lives. No, when Christ came into your life, he took over the whole thing. His spirit is in you and so everything you do in your body has spiritual weight to it. And Paul drives this home for us in such a helpful way in verse 5. He says, don't deprive each other except by mutual consent and then only for a time so that you may devote yourselves to prayer, then come together again. A married couple, health permitting, age permitting, are to be regularly sexually active without exception. Or if there is an exception, says Paul, uh, if there's a reason to pause, it would be because of a mutual agreement and only then for a short time and for the purpose of prayer. Ah, see, I knew there were more important things in a Christian marriage than sex. You know, things like prayer, really spiritual stuff. No, says Paul. Do you see it there in verse 6? I mention prayer only as a concession here, not as a command. Don't take this the wrong way. It's not that prayer is more important than sex. It's that you should have sorted out your life together enough that there is time for prayer and time for sex. But there may be times where you need to pause to get your prayer life sorted out. But only briefly, says Paul. Now let me say, if there's a reason here to have sex is is not to deprive each other, then first and foremost, again, it means that we need to get better at talking, don't we? Apparently as a society we're forever talking about sex. It's on the TV, it's in the papers, it's in the streets, it's everywhere. Everywhere except where we should be talking about it. In our marriages. If we did, we would know how not to deprive each other. We would know what each other needs we would know even what each other likes. Our, uh, a married couple have different tastes, don't they? It's true of all aspects of marriage. We're different people. Liz, for instance, likes um, dark chocolate. I, uh, I'm more of a Cadbury's man. Milk chocolate is uh, my variety, so uh, we know that and we don't deprive each other chocolate. So get talking. Couples need to ask clear questions of each other. How can I please you? That's a gospel question. You believe that? What pushes your buttons? Literally. Be specific. Get details. Talk about it. Don't play guess what's in my head. Men aren't smart enough for that game. (laughs) Now what I love here in in verse five is Paul linking this to prayer. There are points, aren't there, in our lives as Christians, where we realise again that we need to get our prayer life sorted out as a couple if we're married. And we get we get together and we think we need to pray more often. We need a, a healthy habit of prayer we need to make sure we're doing that and we'll even talk about what we're going to do when we pray we will we, we'll talk about let's think about this issue well let's pray for them or that person or this event or this ministry or this problem and if we're going to avoid depriving each other sexually we need to take the same approach be committed to a healthy pattern talk about it don't be okay if it slips And talk about what would be good to do when you are together. Be specific. Spell it out. And finally, while we're on the subject of not depriving each other, men, realise that if you deprive her time or affection or interest or timely help, don't be surprised if you feel somewhat deprived sexually. Paul gives one more reason why sex is so important in marriage. In verses 2 and 5, he says... Sex in marriage is a means of avoiding sexual temptation. You see, Paul knew that for the Corinthians, sexual temptation was everywhere. You wandered the streets of Corinth and sex was on sale on every street corner. Our streets are no different, are they? In fact, you don't even need to wander the streets to be tempted sexually. A marriage without sex exposes a husband and wife to that temptation. Now Paul raises this here not to excuse sexual immorality. A person who sins that way shows how little grace has changed them, how unaware they are that their body is not their own, that they were bought at a price. And so if you are suffering from an unfaithful spouse, it is not a lack of sex that has caused it. That's the way our world thinks. As victims, it's my circumstances that has led to this. The Bible says rubbish. The one given grace in Christ crucified, whose life is cross-shaped, is called to be holy whatever situation. But having said that, husbands and wives, given that sexual temptation is everywhere, Paul says don't give the devil a foothold. Defend each other. Hold fast together. Be the object of each other's sexual desire. Be jealous for your spouse's love to be directed at no one but you. And in this, see the danger in the way we live our lives. It's easy, isn't it, to be so preoccupied with other things, so busy with work or family or so absorbed with sport or even television or church activities or whatever it might be, that we have no time or energy to enjoy each other sexually. Now, issue is this, that we don't prioritise sex. Or if we do, it's only at the level of intentions. Yes, I know it's important, but it never moves to action. But being spiritual, being like our God, is about being people who make good on their intentions. So don't be too busy to be having sex together if you're married. It is a gospel priority. It is how you fulfil your promise to each other. It is how you please each other. It is how you help each other to be godly with your sexuality. And let me encourage you to be accountable to someone in this. You you might be in a small group or perhaps a a prayer triplet and you have someone who maybe asks questions like, how's your prayer life going? This is another important question. How's your sex life? And let me say that includes people who aren't married. If you meet up with someone who is married, be accountable to each other on this issue. In verse 8, Paul moves to a second issue that at first seems the exact opposite but is very much related. Essentially what he says in verses 8 and 9 is this, if you're having sex, get married. He seems to be uh, talking in these verses about those who are unmarried and how they should act in a way that is spiritual when it comes to marriage and sex. And once more he agrees with what they've said. He says, yes, you're right, Uh, being unmarried, being single is good. You see it there in verse 7? He says, I'm single and I love it. I am content." Being single, it's great. I wish everybody was as I am. It's good to be single. It's good to not marry. It's good to abstain from sex if you are. But verse 8, he says that he says, To the unmarried and to the widows, I say this it's good to stay that way, as I am. I can vouch for it. But, says Paul in verse 9, let's call a spade a spade. If they cannot control themselves, they should marry, for it is better to marry than burn with passion. Now let me tell you what Paul doesn't mean here. He isn't saying, look, if you're unmarried and uh, you struggle with sexual temptation, then you better get married quick. That's to regard this verse as if God is saying the only reason he created marriage is to to provide a safe place for those with strong sexual desire. That's the only reason for marriage, if you take that verse this way. It's almost viewing marriage as like a legal injecting wound. In Australia, we were one of the first countries to to set up a a place in Sydney where people who are struggling with drug addiction can go uh, to apparently safely uh, do that. That's almost the picture here if you read verse 9 this way, is if you're someone who struggles with sexual temptation, look, marriage is God's safe house for you. But there's two big problems with that reading. First, you find me a human who is not sexual. We are sexual beings, married or otherwise. We all have sexual desires. It's not a component that God puts in some and not others. It's not an upgrade you get when you're moving towards marriage. Paul has just been at pains to show us how important and valuable sex is. It's a good gift. It's not a a sort of a concession. What Paul is saying is this. If you're married, enjoy being married. It's great. If you're unmarried, enjoy that too. It's good. I can vouch for it, says Paul. And, of course, sex is not appropriate in that context. But, verse 9, if you do not have self-control, if you are in an unmarried relationship and you've stopped fighting sexual temptation and you're now sexually active, then get married. Paul's issue is not with those who fight sexual temptation, but those who stop fighting. And in the context, he's not speaking of promiscuous sex here that he's been talking about in the previous chapters. To that, he'd simply say, flee, flee. Here he speaks to the Christian couple who are getting serious in their relationship, probably in this culture they're engaged and they've let sexual desire beat them. He says if you're playing at marriage, get married. Paul knows what sex is about. He knows it's at the heart of how couples honour God or dishonour him. Sex in the Bible is a covenant making and keeping act. It is a physical expression of the promise you make in marriage. It is holding fast to each other and forsaking all others. It is the deep end of the ocean. It says you are one. And God has designed us to say that with our bodies when our hearts and minds and souls and life are ready to back that up. Song of Songs that we read earlier says it's not to be awakened until we're ready for that commitment. It is a seal on your heart. It is as strong as death. It is as unyielding as the grave. What Paul is doing in these verses is he's jolting those who play with sex. Don't muck around with it, he says. It's too powerful, too serious and too good to mess with. It is beautiful but use it wrongly and it will cause you great pain. And I've seen that many times in the Christian community, people playing at marriage, playing with sex. Whether it be friends, uh, and I had many like this as I was growing up, friends friends who start travelling the world together as unmarried couples. It's just easier that way. They want to see the world together. And what do you think is going to happen? Or university students who who, uh, share a house with uh, with other Christians and uh, start a relationship, playing house. Or engaged couples who start cohabiting just before they're married to save money. What do you think is going to happen? Or even a widow who starts a serious relationship after a time and again plays house. In the wider context of 1 Corinthians, Paul would say flee sexual immorality. But if you can't, if you're not controlling your sexual temptation, get married. They should marry, he says, for it is better to marry than to burn with passion. He says this to challenge those who are engaged or heading towards marriage and think it's okay, I know he's the one for me or she's the one for me. There won't be any others. Paul says, play that game and this is what happens. You burn with passion. And he's not talking here about burning with sexual desire. You've quenched that passion already. No, once you take care of that passion, a new burning begins now. A burning that all the sex, all the words of promised future commitment, all the playing house can't fix. Verse 9 literally means you burn with shame. Shame because you were meant to fight and flee sexual immorality and now all the walls are down. You've stopped fighting. Shame because God's spirit is in you and you are grieving him. Shame because you look at her and you see the one that you're meant to look after, the one that Timothy says you are to treat like a sister with absolute purity. The one you said you loved and when the when the moment came, when the challenge came for you to stand up, you will out. Shame because you see the one you said you'll be faithful to and yet you can't be faithful to your God. And here's what happens. All too often when couples stop struggling with sexual temptation, they don't flee sexual immorality, they flee God in shame. I saw that with a couple I grew close to in my previous church in Sydney, great Christian couple slowly drifting from God because of playing this game. see it in a couple I'm chatting with, here as well i've seen it also in an old friend a widower who began a friendship with another guy years after the death of her first husband and now she's playing house and has left god we flee in shame and the way back well it's not fleeing god is it it's repentance it's receiving grace from him that can take care of even the deepest set shame Christ was crucified to take away shame. Don't flee from him, run to him. And then Paul will say to you, the way forward is to stop playing house and build one, one that will honour him, one where his crucified and risen son is known and loved and lifted high. There's so much in these verses, isn't there? And uh, we will see much more next week as we continue to look at this chapter together, see how the gospel shapes our most important relationships. Even what we've seen so far, we've just scratched the surface. So let me encourage you, if you're in a small group, to enjoy talking about this together. It's important to do that. Important to pray for each other. Enjoy praying together in your groups. And if you're not in a group and you want to tease these things out more, want to talk about them, please join one. To the marriage, I say, talk about this passage together. There's lots to talk about, isn't there? Enjoy the wife or husband of your youth. And if you're playing at marriage or you know those who are, encourage them to come to Jesus and to get married. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you so much that you are a God who is deeply interested in the details of our lives. We pray for the marriages of this church family, that they will be ones that honour you, that they will be spiritual marriages We pray, Father, that you help the marriages of this church family to have time to talk about these things well so that they may honour you. We pray also for those who are playing at marriage that you will bring healing and grace. And Father, we pray for all of us that we will spur one another on towards love and good deeds in these areas. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.